0: You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of Genesis. Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Genesis, and we are still in chapter 3. And I have been rereading some of the text just simply because I'm trying to glean and extract every single concept I can possibly find in this chapter. But tonight we're going to talk about the issue of redemption eventually. But I want you to first turn to chapter 3 of Genesis and beginning in verse 7 and I want to read on through to the actually to the 20th verse. May skip a few in between. Would you stand with me as we read this together? The text begins as follows. It says, "Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and so they f- sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves." And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, "'Where are you?' He answered, "'I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid.' And he said, "'Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I have commanded you not to eat?' And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then in verse 20 it says, and Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made garments of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we look to Your Word tonight, that You would grant us the grace to, to understand and, and also to apply Your Word to our lives. Lord, we, we should rightly live in a certain apprehension that we would be only hearers of Your Word and, and not people who are also doers, and as James said, thereby deceive ourselves. We confess, Lord, that we're easily deceived. It's only Your truth and the truth of Your Word that keeps us aware, Lord, and Lord, it's only as we live it out that we begin to enjoy the blessings of following close behind You. So, help us in this endeavor by the time that we spend in Your Word today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Recently, I've been given a lot of thought to um, why so many born-again Bible-believing Christians neglect actually spending time reading the Bible and studying it and really endeavoring to get to know it. Because, I mean, I I meet people saying, well, I read the Bible and I just can't remember it and I can't process it. And yet, if I ask them uh, some detail about, like, the Seahawks game last weekend, they can tell me, you know, almost minute by minute, every play and what happened. They have total recall. And I realized it has a lot to do with what you consider to be important. If remembering something is important to you, then you tend to remember it. And that really caused me to query, why is it that so many Christians don't consider it to be vitally important to know what the Bible says? And granted, I understand I'm probably preaching to the choir right now, and the people that most need to hear this aren't here, okay? So (laughs) I'll share it with you. You can share it with them. But a simple thing, it occurred to me that these, even though people say, well, I believe that the Bible is God's Word, and according to most research, like 80-plus percent of people who profess to be Christians say, well, the Bible is the Word of God, I believe that, and yet when they're pressed on the details about the Bible and what it teaches, then you begin to get some unusual answers and some uh, results that you wouldn't expect. In fact, you find that they believe things that aren't even biblical, You see, and I found that what they are is they're completely competent in the factuality of the Scripture, and they will say that I know it's completely reliable, and yet at the same time they say, I believe it's true, but I don't believe that everything it says is true. Or what they're more implying is I don't think it's historically accurate, I don't think it's factually founded. So when they read the Bible, what they do is they do it with somewhat of a jaundiced perspective. They have this inner, even unaware reservation where they're weighing and bouncing out, does that fit into how I see the world that I live in? And if what the Bible says seems to contradict what they have come to believe is the way that life should be lived, we often defer to our past experience or our past influences and training. Now, I'm not going to get terribly psychological about this, but the issue is, is can we really believe that the Word of God can be trusted, and, and, and more importantly, is it safe for me to believe the Bible and base my life decisions, especially important life decisions, on what I believe the Bible says? Because most of us are pretty easy with the, with the lower-level, everyday, mundane kind of decisions we have to make. I mean, we know, yeah, I shouldn't lie, I shouldn't cheat, I shouldn't steal, you know, I shouldn't commit murder except on odd, odd and even days when it's a federal holiday or something like that. We kind of have all that figured out in our mind, but what really we struggle with is, is it safe for me to really do this? I know for me, the first, the first time I really struggled with that was regarding tithe, tithing, you know what I mean? I don't, sorry to mention that word in your presence, but I just remember what looking at saying, I'm not sure I can afford this. And I wrestled with that. Do I believe that God can pour out a blessing greater than I can contain? Or do I listen to my dad who said, that's nuts. <laughs> I find that that's the kind of struggle that all of us kind of go through, that we believe it's true, but then when it comes to this kind of rubber-meets-the-road everyday decisions that are going to cost us something in, in relationships or in money or in time or energy or career choice or hopes and dreams, we wonder, is it really safe for me to completely entrust myself to what God says? And I, and I would put a caveat in there, make sure you truly are interpreting it correctly you know, I mean, it's like the guy one time who said, well, I just want to know God's will, and I opened the Bible, and he said, you know, Judas went out and hung himself, and then he flipped to another passage and looked at it and said, do thou the same. You know, it's kind of, you have to be careful that you're, you're interpreting it correctly and within its context, but nonetheless, when you've done that and you know what God is saying to you, do you commit yourself to the path that He's put in front of you? You see, what's really contributed to that reticence is that we have lived in a culture that, that has pretty much a, a nonstop, in fact, it's got so persistent, it's it's really kind of a mantra that is repetitiously repeated from the most prominent religious authority in our culture and much of the world today, and that's called scientism. And scientism is actually a religious philosophy that says, I believe that science is absolute factual truth and reality, and I can trust it. Now, I think Paul had a different view of it. In fact, I love the way one translator put his comment, he said, he referred to it as irreverent babble and contradictions, what is falsely called knowledge. Another one translated, the the practiced confusion of the so-called experts. You see, what's most ironic to me is that the Bible is actually the basis for modern science. Because what the Bible did is it basically told us that we live in an ordered universe, that it's governed by laws that are observable, that can be studied, that can be measured, can be understood, and even can work as predictors of what's going to happen. We call them sometimes the laws of nature… And simply, we realize that there's these kind of inviolate things, that when you drop things, they're going to go down because of this force called gravity, which we're just barely beginning to understand even what that is at this point in time. But we know that in order to fly, you have to defy the force of gravity. You have to be a greater force thrusting the ship into the air than the force of gravity, which wants to push it down upon the earth. So that, you know, you do realize that Flying is a really, really safe thing to do, and commercially at least, you know, it's, it's only the first 24 seconds that you should be nervous, and the last eight. Because you see, what happens is almost all accidents on airplanes happen on takeoff or landing. Of course, that kind of goes without saying because a crash could be categorized as a landing, right? <laughs> so just threw that in there for those of you who are nervous. And are going to us with Israel in a few weeks. (laughs) But it was really, when you realize how funny it was, because you look at the earliest scientific minds, the Newtons and others, who really formulated the whole science of science, they were devout believers. They believed in the God of the Bible, and they were very committed to it, and yet there came along further later generations, men like Charles Darwin, who really set out intentionally, he admits this, to excise God from the discussion and try to give a naturalistic explanation of how everything around us came into being and sustains its existence. And it's one of those things that uh, we're way past the point where anybody really believes much of what Darwin had to say. I mean, quite honestly, you'll feel, find very few scientists who will simply say, yeah, I really rely upon the origin of species to do my work, because we know that so much that he concluded was, was incorrect, and, and it wasn't even plausible because knowledge has increased. But you see, once that ship left the harbor, there's something within man that wants to liberate itself. We talked a few weeks ago about the desire for autonomy. We want to be autonomous, independent from God. We want to liberate ourselves from the things that bind us so we can live a life of free expression and free behavior, much like a two-year-old who wants the freedom to run in the street. And oftentimes, lives end up having similar consequences, you know, when some motorized vehicle and it comes into your life and mows you down because you shouldn't have been running in the street. But when it's all done and said, it's created a dynamic within our culture where you oftentimes find yourself in discussions with people about certain things, and if you disagree with them, they'll say, well, science has proven, or the science is settled. And I was thinking to myself some examples of that that are around here. I think, for example, the idea that science has proven that there's a gay gene and some people are just born that way. Having spent an immense amount of time searching that question out, I found there's absolutely no basis for those claims whatsoever. And yet people spout that off. Science, it's almost like you throw science in there. Or how about the science of, well, it used to be global warming, but when it didn't warm, it became climate change. And as I was listening to California's governor the other day explaining that the wildfires that have been devastating California is the consequence of climate change and the lack of rain, and I'm thinking about, wait a minute, your reservoirs are overflowing to the point where they're falling apart because you didn't prepare for the water that you got anyway. But you just sit there and go, what is this? And you begin to realize that certain views of worldviews become so controlling of the way that people think that they can't even see the obvious contradiction. By the way, do you have any idea how… You ever heard the statement? I love this one. 90% of scientists all agree in climate change. You ever heard that? You know how they came up with that number? I I often wondered, how did they ever come up with 90%? And and when I found out, I just about fell out of my chair because they didn't send out a survey out to every scientist or climate scientist and say, what do you think about this? And, you know, 90% of them checked the yes box. No, what they did is they took 1,400 uh, articles that were written by climatologists on the climate. And of those 1,400 journals or articles, they found 80 that talked about the potential of climate warming. Most of them are saying it could be, maybe it is, it seems like this is where… and it's this discussion, only about 17 said, we absolutely believe it's true. But based upon the 80 articles that talked about global warming, they decided that 90 percent of those 80 articles supported it, therefore, 90 percent of climate scientists agree. Do you feel like you've been lied to? It's a pretty amazing dynamic, but that's the whole point. We oftentimes just roll over in those conversations because we've become so accustomed, well, science says, and that's why increasingly we're looking at science in that that sense as being scientism. It's almost a religious faith that if we can say that science supports it, then we know it's true. I mean, it's the whole reason I use the toothpaste I use because nine out of ten dentists (laughs) endorse it. At least that's what the guy in the white coat on TV said. Is it working? But I think a really interesting example of that came up recently. At least somebody sent me this article this week, and it was really fascinating because I wasn't aware of it. But I don't know if you ever heard of, the, of, of a place called Göbekli Tepe. It kind of has a ring to it, doesn't it? Uh, basically, it's, it's located in the, in the, Turkish, the Kurdish area of, of Turkey. It's between the, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. There's a, a massive ancient temple complex Uh, It's kind of like the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was a a, a Kurdish uh, uh, shepherd was wandering with his flocks, and he came across these large uh, flat stones, and so he notified somebody who notified the, the British Archaeological Exploration uh, uh, Society in Turkey, and they came and looked at it. And I love the, the statement from the British archaeologist who first came to the site, and he looked at it, and he said, when I looked at what, realized what I was looking at, I realized that if I didn't walk away right now, I was going to be here for the rest of my life. And you know what? He's been there <laughs> ever since and will probably die there. But what's fascinating about this particular discovery was that archaeologists refer to it now as the Temple of Eden. And the reason they do is part because it's proximity between the Tigris and Euphrates River, uh, its locations near to what the Bible described as where uh, Eden was originally located. But what they found as they began to excavate the site has completely uh, upended all of our previous assumptions about primitive man especially that he was not or she was not as primitive as we thought he or she was. Now, in fact, one writer put it this way, the, the rune has revolutionized the way we look at human history, the origin of religion, and perhaps even the truth behind the Garden of Eden. In other words, like, you know, this may not be as crazy as we thought what is interesting is the evidence places the dating the date of this site about 8000 to 9000 BC about 10000 years ago at least and we have operated for a long time under the assumption that primitive mankind lived in caves scavenged for foods widely and wandered across the earth and who managed inexplicably to engage in these amazing cave artings, uh, uh, drawings. You know, uh, the Oladive caves in, in, in France have always fascinated me because these are supposed to be primitive cave drawings, and they're so far beyond what I could do <laughs> that I thought it proved the point. My dad said, you must be a Neanderthal. But amazingly, even though you look at this, this, the accuracy and the graphic, we still could comfort ourselves saying, because they painted them inside of a cave, they must have been cave dwellers and, and primitive men. But Gobekli Tepe reveals something quite different about people 10,000 years ago. What they found were hundreds of massive carved stones, 20 feet high, each one weighing at least 20 tons. They, were covered, they cover an area of hundreds of acres. Much has not been excavated yet. They were carried from co- quarries hundreds of miles away Arranged in perfect circles and covered with incredibly delicate, complex, lifelike carvings. Now these are primitive wandering nomads. How did they manage to, to get do this? How did they accomplish it? As and various archaeologists commenting on it made things, statements like this: "It said the, this is the most important archaeological site in the world today. It's the oldest. This is the oldest evidence of human." civilization that we have on the planet that we found to date. And instead of being primitive cave dwellers painting on, you know, using powdered paint to blow on the wall, which in itself would be beyond my capacity also, these people are actually constructing massive structures with ornate and and delicate detail. Another said it's too extraordinary for my mind to even understand. (laughs) Another said it shows that the old hunter-gatherer life in this region of Turkey was far more advanced than we have ever conceived almost unbelievably so- sophisticated. Unbelievably sophisticated. Why is it unbelievable? If you have basically based your whole scientific understanding on the idea that we start from <coughs> primordial ooze and evolve through the millennia and in the, in the billions of years to the place where we are today, then it would be hard to believe that somebody backed that point in time could be so civilized but if you base it on the biblical account like we're studying that God created Adam in even full form then it's not such a stretch of the mind because in a way we might say actually the evolution is going the other way and in fact some of the physical remains actually demonstrate that people who are taller stronger have straighter teeth <laughs> and i say that with all caution to the orthodox in the room but bottom line is You see, increasingly we find across a broad spectrum, and we spent a lot of time doing this, talking about this last year, but in almost every area that we find the Bible speaks, it gives a very accurate, far more accurate uh, summary of the events than we have ever assumed before, that it's not simply a compilation of mythical stories built on primitive cosmology, But in fact, what it is, it's a historical record. And I say all of this because it's critically important to us, that if we believe that the Bible accurately represents historical events, and human history in particular, then its story represents what is real, what is reality. And you see, something cannot be true if it's not real. But if it is real, that's because it's true. And that's where it really means that if we ignore its message, we're really kind of endangering our own welfare and our own selves. And I think that's kind of the place we find ourselves culturally. And we find it even in the culture of the church, that there's a a weakening of our confidence in what the Word of God says, and as a result, we find ourselves always kind of measuring and weighing out our decisions based upon, well, the Bible says this, but you know, the experts say this, and that begins to intrude into our lives more and more and more. And we stop being people who discriminate based upon what the Word of God says. Because as Paul said, a spiritual man judges all things. I mean, you cannot help but be judgmental about the world around you, but what influences the direction that your judgments take you is based upon whether you believe what God said is true or you think it might be true in some cases. You see, the Bible, I want you to understand, is not, as some people assume, in a randomly assembled disparate collection of 66 ancient books. It is one book. It is, has 66 different authors, of course. It, it has, uh, I mean, 66 different books and 44 different authors written over a period of 3,500 years. But it all has this one singular main message, which is what we're talking about or going to talk about here in a moment. And that is the God's plan for the redemption of mankind. That's, that's what it's about from Genesis to Revelation. It was uh, uh, Dr. Chriswell many years ago who came up with this phrase. He called it the scarlet thread of redemption. And he loved to start here in Genesis 3 and take us all the way through the Bible showing how God bit by bit and piece by piece revealed ever-increasing in detail how He planned and purposed to redeem mankind and Himself, beginning with the creation and the fall and ending with the redemption. And it was a plan that was fashioned not after the fact. God didn't have plan A, B, a perfect world with a perfect man and wife who live happily ever after and never see death or sin or disease But rather, God created this perfect place, and then He gave man the one silver bullet that he knew he couldn't resist using, and that was free will, personal sovereignty, that I can say yes or no to anything that God says to me. I may not have much control over anything else, but I definitely have that control. I thought it's interesting to me that little children, probably the first words my kids ever knew was, no. And we've been exercising that a lot ever since. And it's almost always in the face of authority that we don't want to have to submit to. But God had this plan from the beginning. Revelation 13, 8 tells us that, right? The Lamb that was slain from before the creation of the world. That before God spoke the universe into existence, He had a plan, and that plan is what's laid out for us in the text of Scripture, And that's why when we sometimes worry about what the events of the future hold and keep ourselves awake at night and locked onto the news channels to see the latest iteration of whatever's going on at the moment, it's easy for us to forget how the story ends. You know, you just have to read the last chapter of the book, and it's very clear that we win. Now, I can't tell you how messy it's going to be, but I'm just telling you, we win and we overcome. And part of the thing that we struggle with is when we're holding tightly to something that we have in this life and we begin to become afraid that if things get difficult I will lose that thing. What we're showing more is more about ourselves than we are about God or his plan or anything else in the world. We're showing that we're holding very tightly to things that God says we need to hold to very loosely. Because this world is not my home as the song says. Sounds like the youth are having fun, okay. Pay no attention to that booming behind the wall. But where does this thread of redemption begin? Well, it begins most clearly here in chapter 3. What this also tells us is that God is the one who seeks us, not the other way around. And you may be thinking, well, what? what's your point? And I'll try to make that as best I can because I think it's really a critical important point considering the time and age in which we live. Because what I find back in the 90s, what became very popularized within the church is the idea that people were referred to as seekers. And based upon passages like Luke 11.10 where it says, you know, for everyone who seeks will find… And so, therefore, they're saying there's people who are seeking for God, and, and we need to begin to, to kind of structure our churches and our services and our environment so that when those people come seeking, they won't have to work through the, the, the jargon and the, the liturgy and all the kind of stuff we have, but they'll be able to connect with us and really see that, you know, we're people too and all of that sort of stuff, which to some degree I, I certainly agree with. But one of the most important things we need to realize and in terms of the rules of biblical interpretation, first of all, is that you don't draw a conclusion or create a theology or even a, a, an approach to ministry based upon one passage of Scripture or even, even just a couple. And secondly, when you do look at that Scripture, you've got to make sure that you're understanding it within its context. And that so often when Jesus or the Scriptures talk about seeking, it's talking about somebody who's already been found. That my challenge is having been found by God, I need to be continuing in the process of seeking after Him. So that when you begin to make a survey of of New Testament passages and you look at this whole concept of seeking God, you find that it's often far different than what we're told. That we're not told that men are out there seeking for God. We're told they're seeking for something else. In Romans 3.10, he says, as it is written, no one is righteous, not even one, There is no one who understands, no one, he says, who seeks God. That when I came to Christ, I wasn't seeking Christ, (laughs) you know? I was seeking to get my girlfriend to like me more, which happened to be my wife. So the point is, it's just, you know, that was really the motivation. Yeah, I'll go with you to your religious thing, (laughs) but I wasn't seeking God. God, God sought me out. But it was Jesus who tells us, for example, in Luke 19:10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. In Luke 15, we have the parable of the, the lost sheep. It's the shepherd who is going out looking for the one who is lost, not the one who is lost looking for the shepherd. It's the woman who lures, loses the coin that goes and cleans and sweeps the whole house that she might find that one coin and then celebrates when she finds it. So the message over and over again is that Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And That's why Paul would say to the Romans, it's God's kindness that leads you towards repentance. And this agrees with what we see here in Genesis 3, because what do we read? Adam and Eve sin, and what are they doing? They're sowing, they're hiding, they're blaming we read, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. I always loved the old King James that said they they heard the voice of the Lord, which is an allowable translation. It's almost like they heard God walking and talking through the garden, and they hid from the Lord God. That's what we do. We hide from God. And we do for a very simple reason. Jesus explained it in John 3.19. He said, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. <laughs> and everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I don't want to get terribly personal, and I'm certainly not going to ask for any personal examples at this moment, but don't you and I kind of live with a kind of uh, a, almost a resident level of anxiety about being found out about something. It was Mark Twain that said, we're all like the moon. We have a dark side we hope nobody will ever see. I mean, that's, that's, that's the truth. And yet somehow within the church, we want to pretend that we don't have a dark side or we've never had a dark side. Or if I did have a dark side, that was before I came to the light. But now I'm just purity. You know, and you you might even believe that about me, but because you have never ridden with me in a car. As I get older <laughs> As I get older, it's, it's, it's become almost like a, uh, something that happens to me. I can't avoid it. I find in that brief moment between being sound asleep and just starting to wake up, you know, that time when you're just kind of coming back into your awareness, in between that and being fully awake, there's always a memory of something from the past. And I just think it's God dealing with me because I always remember something I said or did That I'm seeing it in a completely different light than in the moment when it happened. And I find myself saying, (laughs) beginning my day by saying, Oh Lord, (laughs) forgive me for that. That was so much, there, there was so much pride in that. There was so much selfishness in that. There was so much arrogance in that. There was so lack of so much. I didn't understand. I, God, just forgive me. Forgive me. But I'm glad He does it in my sleep, <laughs> in that twilight between sleep and awakening. I'm glad He doesn't roll the tape, <laughs> and I know you are too. And I think it's important for us to, to get this about ourselves, because there comes a lot of the bondage. And that's why somebody might ask a question, well, why does it matter whether He's seeking me or I'm seeking Him? It matters because if we call ourselves seekers, we re- actually end up redefining the nature, not only of our relationship with God, but, but also the authority structure of that relationship. Mark Sayer puts it really well. He, this is what he said. We prefer to be the free-sounding spiritual seeker rather than the tied-down religious dweller. In the worldview of the seeker, the authority, the responsibility, the centrality is on the seeker. But in in this vision, God is stationary, waiting to be found. God is not really the center of the drama, rather He is the supporting actor of the main player who is the seeker. It is a disfiguration, he goes on to say, of the biblical narrative, an inverted gospel we are not the seekers, we are the slaves. We are not the seekers, we're the slaves. And that's why I, it was so st- staggering to me when I was just going over this passage again and, and realizing that the whole narrative did not begin with Adam and Eve suddenly saying, what have we done? We need to run to the Lord and ask Him to fix us. No, their response is like your response and my response. I'm going to hide I'm going to cover it up and I'm going to find somebody to put put the blame on. I'm going to cover my rear end so that I can escape punishment. In truth, man is the hider and God is the seeker. As evidenced by the fact that when God comes into the garden, He asks the question, where are you? Now, please don't tell me you don't think that God didn't know where they were. you know, any more than when, when I, my grandkid put their hands over their face and hide from me. It's like, you know, I mean, really, it's cute, but I hope you develop beyond this point sometime. You know, it's because it's, you know, it's obvious. But the simple fact is, it's God who is initiating the pursuit he is the lover who is looking for that which is lost. And he is the one who's saying, Where are you? And we might say, well, why does he even bother asking that question in the first place? And the answer is, because it's only as we respond to that query that we have any chance of ever being recovered. See, God created mankind so he could have fellowship with him. Yeah, I think you understand that and sin interrupted and eventually severed that relationship as we'll get into next week in the very real way in which that was severed. But our response to all of our sins and all of our weakness, the fact that we are sinners, our natural response is to do these things, is, is to become ashamed and is to try to cover that and to hide it. And, and when we're exposed to kind of find somebody else to scapegoat that upon, and I'm not saying that that's just you. I'm saying, no, that's us. That's, this is our nature, unassisted by the Holy Spirit. But God, who is also, I love the way that, that James put it when he said he's the father of lights. In other words, if there's light in the world, it's because it's emanating from him. He created it. He birthed it. And then John would go on to say in his first letter, in him there is no darkness at all, that it creates this dynamic that if I come into the purview of God in any way, shape, or form, it's going to expose things about myself that I prefer not to even think about, much less have anybody else know about. God exposes my shame, but He doesn't do it to shame me. He does it to free me from the bondage and the slavery and the death that the sin that produces that shame creates in the first place. And He calls out to you and me as He did to Adam and Eve and to step out of that darkness, to come out of those places of hiding, to take off our disguises and to be able to admit to God who we really are. That's what we're really proposing to the person who doesn't know Jesus and saying, do you want to accept Jesus? It's really almost a way of misstating the dynamic. We're not just simply saying accepting Him. It's asking to be accepted. And the only way that can happen is by exposing myself to the reality, I am a sinner. Now, I confess, when I gave my life to the Lord, the pastor said, okay, repeat after me. So I repeated. And he said, I am a sinner. And so I said, I am a sinner. And I said that unthinkingly. But apparently, it was good enough for God because I knew from that moment that something had changed, and I felt that that weight of the heaviness of life, a weight that I had been so accustomed to carrying, I wasn't even aware I was carrying it until it had been taken off of my shoulders, and that moment of freedom and liberation was so profound that I knew I'd never be the same, and I also knew i never want to live a moment of my life feeling that heaviness and that guilt and that shame ever again. And I'll do whatever I can to be released from it. This is why the interrogation, when he he says, have you eaten from the tree which I command you not to eat? He knows they have, but he wants them to admit it. What is it you have done, he asks them. And it's interesting that like us, We never read in the text actually any point in their life where they actually owned up to what they had done. I hope and I trust and believe at some point they took ownership. I mean, I have to believe that's the case. But it's important that the text doesn't tell us that. What it emphasizes is how that God is pursuing us. Like Francis Thompson's great poem, The Hound of Heaven, he pursued me over the hills and the valleys, and I love the way he put it, I can't put it so poetically, like I never remember it because the English is so, so stilted, but bottom line is he said, simply says, I ran and I ran and I ran through the years until finally I, 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 I stopped running and I turned around and I realized that the one who was pursuing me is the one whom I had been pursuing all my life. The one who took captive of me was the one who I ran from fearing being captive. But when I became a captive, I became free for the first time. God is the inquisitor, but not for the purpose of condemnation. He's like the physician or the great healer who who queries us about our our ailments, our struggles, our diseases, that he might discern how he can heal, not so he can hurt. It's the reason why David was saying in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart and, and test me and know my anxious thoughts. And I would just challenge you to take some time to think through each of those statements. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, I None of us ask those things or praise that way because we want to see the offensive way in ourselves, but we do definitely want to know the way of everlasting, the way of life. And the simple, the, the, the formula, the mathematics of it are really kind of simple because it's like sin can't be forgiven until it's exposed, and it can't be exposed until it's confessed. God won't shame you. And only when we confess can we be forgiven, and only when we have been forgiven can we be fixed. This is essentially what John says in in 1 John 1.8. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves. We think our Halloween costumes really do make people think we are Superman or Superwoman or whatever the in costume is these days. But then he adds... But if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge and own them, He's faithful and just, and He will forgive us. Where's the justice? Christ already paid the price. Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's why it's just, because He paid the price for my sins. And therefore, if I ask Him to forgive me, He will forgive me. And then He goes on to say, and He'll purify us from all of our unrighteousness. That's where I get the fixed part. He He not only forgives me, He fixes me. And I know that every one of us in this room has something for which they need to be fixed. But most notably in all of this, is not only that God exposes man's sins, but He also makes a promise to Him that one day the Redeemer will free man from the effects of that sin. And basically, it's interesting how he puts this because he says in verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, speaking of the serpent's head, and you will strike his heel. We believe this is the first reference of the Messiah, And part of the reason why I believe it was redemptive promise is because the first thing we read in chapter 4 is Eve conceives a child and she says, the Lord has given me a man. Directly related to the promise that God says, you will have an offspring and out of your offspring will come the one who will step on the serpent's head and break, that is to break his dominion and power and control over you. And he in turn will strike the heel so that the one who crushes him will also pay with his life. But thirdly, he says, but there will be everlasting enmity, that the righteous and the unrighteous will always find themselves in oppositional positions. So that as the world turns away from God, it automatically begins to turn against the church. And this is one of those dynamics that we all hope that in our lifetime we will never be exposed to it, but the reality is large numbers, the vast majority of Christians around the world are exposed to that oppositional force all the time. They live in it and they've lived in it for years. And I can't help but think that there will come a day, a time and a day in which that's going to be a reality for us. I think that's why there kind of came in a a kind of aha moment in my life and in my ministry. I realized, you know, I don't know the concern is, is getting bigger, it's going deeper. That I think what's really critical is we as Christians need to go deeper because there's such a pressure. To be superficial in our faith, to be superficial about our religion, to be cool and to be hip and to be contemporary and connected and, uh, you know, to be the church of what's happening now, that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons why we, we became the church of the 5% tithe. We thought it would have a greater appeal. That scares me that you don't get that joke. <laughs> Whoo we need to go deeper. <laughs> but not only did He say He would redeem them one day and give us that promise, and that promise, I said, as you go through the Scriptures, keeps on growing and increasing in, in, in its, its dynamics. I mean, its explanation grows and becomes clearer and clearer. But He also makes provision for their need at that moment. And that's where He says, the Lord God made gar- garments of skin for Adam and His wife and clothed them and the question, of course, becomes, where did the skins come from? And I'm telling you, some poor lamb paid with his life. And I think that's why later on in chapter 4, we find their sacrifice mentioned. Because I think these two children of God, these, they watched their father do sacrifice, and they began to imitate him. And with that, began to put po- Pass into human history the concept that through sacrifice and the shedding of blood, not only do we cover our nakedness, but there's an atonement made for our sins. It just it just occurred to me today that the fact that we're all clothed right now is evidence that we're all sinners. (laughs) We've been covering ourselves ever since. You know, there's that TV show, Was It Naked and Afraid? I don't get that at all. (laughs) That that is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. But the reality is because what you realize is, as my wife put it well, she said, I I don't feel sorry for them whatsoever. (laughs) Because God didn't make us to survive in a world full of thins and thorns and thistles. He clothed us. He covered us. And if you ignore that, you're going to be savaged by life. So, the question ultimately becomes, what is your covering? How have you covered yourself? When you go through your day, are you really relying upon the covering of the Holy Spirit, the covering of the blood of Christ that cleanses and washes you from all unrighteous, or are you kind of trying to move in whatever garment you have made for yourself? And I don't mean literal garments, but sometimes it takes a literal form. And how we try to negotiate the issues of our life. Do, do we do it in the in simple, honest transparency of this is who I am? Or do we feel that we need to kind of present ourselves as differently, more significant, more important, more valuable, more attractive, more witty, more clever, more intellectual, more having more prowess on one thing or another? Or can we just simply live within the freedom of being a slave of God that I didn't find Him because I sought Him out? I was busily doing my own thing, and God, by His grace, intruded into my life and found me. Let's close, and uh, I'm only two minutes over. I feel like a hero. Father God, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would help us to, to understand these things in terms of, in the context of every one of our own lives. We, we all here deal with challenges and struggles and difficulties. We all have our own bucket full of, 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 of mistakes and failures and mess-ups, and Lord, it's, uh, keep us from falling into the, the trap of useless regrets. We can learn from our mistakes, and we should, Lord, but we don't have to live in them because when we ask you to forgive, you forgive. And not only do you forgive and forget, but you fix what's wrong with us. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that we would just posture our lives to be people who are known as being those who have been forgiven, not those who are perfect. We pray for this grace, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.